you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Ephesians. While you're turning there, if you're wondering who that is, what that recording is, what's going on, that was weird, maybe even. Uh, it's a preacher in the early, early to mid-1900s, or yeah, 19th, 20th century. His name is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, he was a medical doctor who became a pastor and preacher and um, is famous, at least within the teaching world, the preaching world, of just walking through books of the Bible, verse by verse, explaining them, encouraging the people uh, with the Word of God, not having anything famous or special of his own to say, but just really an, an incredible commitment to what we would call expositing the Word of God, meaning just exposing the meaning and, and helping his people uh, apply the Word of God. So, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of his famous works is actually in the book of Ephesians, and so we wanted to uh, spend some time, so not, I'm not kidding you when I tell you that we're going to work through really two and a half verses this morning, and it's going to be one sermon on two and a half verses, uh, the doctor, as I like to call him, not the doctor who, okay, not doctor who, but the doctor, um, spent like four sermons on these three verses, um, so if you think we're flying really low to the text, uh, the doctor, again, not Doctor Who, whoever that is, I'm sorry, but, but the doctor, uh, I might be a little out of touch, but this past week on Facebook, I put a quote up from the doctor, and at the end, I said, quote, the doctor, and, and Rusty, our other pastor, says to me, yeah, that doesn't mean the same thing to the rest of the Facebook world, and I'm like, I don't know what other doctor you're talking about. <laughs> and Kristen helped explain who we were talking about. So, again, I probably should have been a faithful culturalist and looked up who they were referring to, but nevertheless, I did not. So, maybe you all can enlighten me later. Ephesians. I want to start with this question. Uh, actually, I, I do want to say something else, too. I would just encourage you, uh, have your Bibles or have it on your your fake Bible on your phone. Um, I'm just kidding. And uh, just follow along. We're going to be in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 11, 12, and 13. Uh, and I also encourage you to take notes to so just kind of help you follow along. Um, and uh, we're just going to walk through this passage together this morning. All right, with that said, I want to ask this question. Or actually, I want to make this statement to get you to think. Think about the times in your life when you believe you were most near to God. I want you to think about that. What was that like? How did it happen? Maybe write that down if you have your notes and a pen. Just write down a couple, jot down a couple thoughts. What, it was, what was it like? I mean, what are the first couple words maybe that come to mind when you think about the times in your life you're most near to God? How did it happen? How did that come about? What do you think brought that to be the case? After you've written that down, I want you to think about the opposite of that, and that is the times in your life when you believe that you were farthest from God. You were farthest from God. What was that like? How did that happen? 
as you were writing down those thoughts, just a couple brief thoughts, I want to speak to you that, that consider yourselves a follower of Jesus Christ, that, that believe that He died on the cross for your sins, and seek to follow Him each day. And my speculation is this, I'm just going to speculate for just a moment, that many of us in this room who are in that category that don't share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that He died paying the price, the, absorbing the wrath due to us for our sins, that we don't live in great joy, and we oftentimes succumb to much sin because we commonly, I think, live as though we are far from God. That we live as though God is a distant thing in our life. And I think for those of you who are saved, have been redeemed, that Paul today wants you to not forget how God changed the distance between you and Him. How He brought you who was far away to now being someone who is near. So I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Now for those who are kind of trying, like thinking about, am I a follower of Christ, trying to think through this, my speculation is this for you. That you struggle with this whole religion thing, this whole Jesus thing, because often you probably feel that God is far away. That God is probably a distant thing to you. Sometimes He's there, but, but a lot of times He's just kind of a, a distant thing, and I don't know how to get Him near. I, 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 I kind of want that, but like, how, how, does, how does that happen? And I want to say to both of those people today, there's lots of glorious truth in these two and a half verses for you. Uh, lots of application for those situations. But for both groups, here's the danger. Okay, Here's the danger. Christian, right? If you follow of Jesus, if you forget how God closed the gap between you and Him, then you will try to draw near to God your own way. You will try to draw near when you feel God is distant. If you forget how God has closed that gap, you will often, my bet, is try to draw near to God on your own. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you do not believe how God has closed the gap, which we're going to talk about that today, then you will try to draw near to God your own way as well. Or try to be near to God, don't want that, but you'll try to do it your own way. And the reality is this, every way except God's way will not only lead you to disappointment, but ultimately to destruction. And you see, our natural inclination, as we've talked about, I don't want to rehash all this in, in Ephesians, our natural inclination is to devise our own way into God's favor. Like, we want to figure it out on our own. We want to get to God on our own. And I think, ultimately, because just like Satan and just like Adam and Eve in the garden, we want to say, look at me, I'm praiseworthy just like God. I have made it on my own. So both to those who follow Jesus who are not sure or, or know they don't follow Jesus, both of us, our natural inclination, inclination is to devise our own way into God's favor. But here's what Paul does. Here's what Paul does. The beginning of chapter 2, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay? I'm not going to read through all of chapter 2 leading up to this point, but he says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins without hope. 
But then he talks about how he's made those alive whom he has chosen. He has, he has brought them to life. Getting into verse 4. And then we see that he has saved us by grace through faith that he brought about. And that he has prepared those whom he has saved for good works. He has prepared good works, rather, for them to do. I mean, and we should praise God for this amazing thing. That he would take a rebel and adopt him or her as a child. That's amazing. And so Paul just gets done painting this picture, verses 1 through 10, as Rusty finished up verses 8, 9, and 10 last week. And Paul says, therefore. So the conclusion, if you will, that Paul derives from what he just stated, from this, you were dead in your sins, God has made you alive by grace, through faith, he's prepared works for you to do, praising God for all of this. Paul says, therefore, so because of all of this, the conclusion that he draws is these words, which will be in this morning in verse 11, 12, and 13. Here we go. It says, therefore, or in my conclusion is this, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we work through these words this morning, I pray that you would just um, wrap your spirit around our heart. Lead us to be your people. And Father, draw those who need Jesus. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. The first thought I want you to remember, I have kind of two main thoughts this morning from this text. Paul is saying, continue remembering how far you have come. Continue remembering how far you have come. Now, I want to make sure I'm clear here. Paul is addressing those who are the saints in Ephesus. So he is addressing those who are indeed followers of Jesus Christ. So what I'm going to do is, as we work through this, understand that majority of what I'm saying is applicable to those who are following Jesus Christ. But what I want to do is show you then how that applies to those who are not following Jesus Christ as we work through this text. So when I say continue remembering how far you have come, these for those that God has brought near, Paul wants you to remember how far you've come. And what I don't mean... And what Paul does not mean is this cute little cultural thing that we do today called, it kind of goes like this. You know, don't forget the life you've lived and, and now the person you've become. You know, like some kind of cute high school graduation speech, right? You've all heard those, right? We must never forget who we have become and where we have come from, you know, and, and you hear the football players, well, we've just been adversity, man. It's just all been nothing but adversity, you know? Where we've come from. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about something much deeper than this. Here's what Paul's talking about. Verse 11. It says, therefore, remember 
that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called them circumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Paul draws, here's what happens. Paul draws a conclusion from all that he has said in verses 1 through 10. Namely, this is his conclusion. You person, you saint, you person who follows Jesus and you're not an ethnic Jew. If God has graciously saved all who have faith in Christ from the world, from the devil, from the flesh, that's verses 1, 2, and 3. If He has done that, and if God has recreated them, these people, to do the works He originally created them to do, then you all, non-ethnic Jews following Jesus, should especially recall how far you have come to now rest in the arms of God this moment. That you should be aware of what God has brought you from. Right, so he says, you person, draw back here with me, you person that follows Jesus, God has recreated. Now, I want to explain what he means by Gentile. At this point, anything, a Gentile is anybody who's not an ethnic Jew. Right? Whether saved or not saved, whether following Jesus or not following, those are Gentiles. But now he's, he's saying to those Gentiles, to those out of that category of people that God has saved, that you should especially recall how far you've come to rest now in the arms of God this moment, to be saved. And Paul, later on in verse, chapter 4, verse 17 through 19, I want to read this for you. He talks about what we once were. He gives an example of what these Gentiles once were. Verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so what I want you to see here is that Paul wants us to continue to remember what we once were as Gentiles. And what he says is that we did not have the physical markings of God's people, namely circumcision. Now what did that indicate? They indicated, and I, I want to encourage you, you can go check this in the Old Testament. I'm not going to take the time to explain all this, but they indicated that we were not the people of God. I want you to understand Ephesians 4.18 says this is ultimately due to the hardness of heart in the Gentiles. But we know this already, of course, from the book of Ephesians earlier on, that, that if we're to follow God, we need a new heart, and that's something only God can do. And then we see in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, how Paul spoke of us as being intrinsically sinful. Because of this, we were without hope. Now Paul says that we were without hope because God had not included us in his chosen people, namely the Israelites, the Jews. And we weren't a part of that. All right, so here's where we need to pause for just a second, because here's where we've got to be really careful. And this is where Paul is doing something really important. For us here. Right, God's people, the Jews at this point, thought, m- m- many of them, particularly the religious leaders of the day, thought that the way to be right with God was through this physical act of circumcision. That if they had this marking, 
on the outside that they were okay, that they were right with God, that they had favor with God, that they were indeed saved, that they were going to heaven. But listen to what Paul says. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Now here's, let's pause for right there. Pause right there. The circumcision at this point, like this phrasing, this you circumcision, this phrasing was a derogatory term used towards those who were uncircumcised. Those who were different than those who were circumcised. This wasn't, a, this wasn't a proud thing. Like the Jews weren't just giving a categorical reference to these people. Here's, here's how we describe it. No, it was a, a derogatory thing. They were trying to be mean. They were trying to say that you were not right with God because this was not the case for you. The circumcision had created, by circumcision, essentially in their minds, they had created their own way to be right with God. Obey the law, and we are fine. Which really just kind of brings us back to my beginning thoughts this morning, and that is us trying to be near to God on our own. And that's what the Jews were doing at this time. They had taken a God-given command of circumcision to, to set apart God's people, and they had said, now, because we've done this, everything is good between us and God. And Paul says... Something very interesting at the, after the end of this phrase. Read with me one more time, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, and it's important, he says in the flesh there, called the uncircumcision by what is called the, circum, the, by what is called the circumcision, that's the Jews. And he says this very interesting for, uh, phrase, which is made in the flesh by hands. So Gentiles in the flesh, and then which is made in the flesh by by hands. Paul is not, right, praising. He's not praising the circumcision of the hands. Instead, what Paul is doing, he's discrediting it as a solution to the problem. Basically, these Gentiles were far from God, and the Jews thought that it was simply because of circumcision. And Paul is saying, this is not so. You Jews are not near to God because you've cut some skin off. Neither are you Gentiles far from God because you haven't. Instead, and here's where I wanted to drive, the problem is much deeper. The problem is much more profound. And Paul is saying you are far from God for much bigger reasons than just some external, some physical issue like circumcision. And so with that, I, I want to say, and I want to say this kindly and humbly, if you're not sure if you're a follower of Christ, kind of thinking through that, you are far from God for much bigger reasons than just doing a little more right than you do that is wrong so that on the cosmic scale of morality, one might outweigh the other. And second of all, you are far from God for much bigger reasons than simply not going to church, or not being baptized, or not being a member, or not saying the right prayer. Now, on the other side of this, if you are a follower of Jesus, you know that 
you were far from God for bigger reasons than just some religious activity. For just for more bigger for bigger reasons than just praying some prayer and needing to utter some magic words. And I want to encourage you too that sometimes you feel far from God now because you have forgotten what your biggest problem was. And Paul says, Christian, you are far from God. This is your problem. Our biggest problem is that we were without Christ. That we were without Jesus. That was our biggest problem. Now those of you thinking through this Christian thing, again, the biggest problem is not that we just need to go to church Although that's a great benefit later. Our biggest problem is not that we just need to do a little bit more good than bad. Our biggest problem is this in verse 12. He says this, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Let's work through verse 12. He says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So for those of you who know you're a follower of Jesus, and you look back, I want you to look back and realize that you were at that time, prior to God saving you, were separated from Christ. Now it's interesting. It's interesting. Just note this with me for a second. Paul's talking about us being outside of Christ. But notice Paul's use of Christ in the context of some great Old Testament concepts here in verse 12. Right? Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without... Those, particularly the second and the third concept there, are very Old Testament things. And I think, just to give you a little side note here, that Paul is giving us an interpretive lens for the Old Testament. He is helping us see, this is how you understand the Old Testament. It all points to Christ, I think is what he's saying. That the Old Testament is interpreted as it points to Jesus. Paul is saying that it has has always been about faith in the Messiah, namely Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to understand how far we were, and to do so he reminds us that we were outside of Christ. That we were far from Christ. Church is the most important item on this list. This is the, this phrase, this, you were at that time separated from Christ. That's kind of a, if you will, an overarching expression, if you will, that refers to anybody who's existing outside the realm of salvation. So outside of being saved and right with God is everyone who is separated from Christ. This is the most important piece on this list. If every spiritual blessing, if you want to go back this week, all spiritual blessings that he says in chapter 1, if every spiritual blessing is available only to those in Christ, then being outside of Christ is of utmost importance. Let's go on in verse 12 there. He says, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. What does he mean by that? Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. 
Basically, what he means is you were not among the people that God was saving. That God had chosen to save these people, and you were not a part of it. Now, whether we like that or not, this, this is very simply what Paul's saying. So you were not a part of these people. That prior to the good news of Jesus Christ, Gentiles were separated from, or strangers, or aliens, if you will, to Israel, to the Jews, to the people that God was saving. And because of that, separated then from the life that God gives, separated. And it's still true for those who are outside of Christ today. Jesus dying on the cross didn't save everybody. It certainly is sufficient to, but it did not save everybody. So those who are outside of Christ today, they're strangers to, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, from, from God's people among whom He is saving. Now let's go on to verse 12 again. The next phrase, alien from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying to you non-ethnic Jews, prior to God saving you, that you had no clue concerning the promises of God, particularly concerning salvation. That you had no clue about these. That Israel, or the ethnic Jews, that, that their scriptures contained not only directions for living as God's people, but also the covenants of promise. And namely, these covenants, I will make a people for myself. That, that they will live in my place, God speaking. They will live in my place. I will bless them. I will make them a blessing to the world. Like, to be included in that group of people, that's a good thing, right? But God's saying, I'll make them my people. I will bless them. But Gentiles were deprived of the privileges that came with these covenants. Particularly covenants like God's promise to Abraham. Talk about descendants and the land in Genesis 13. You can read that this week. Or the new covenant in Christ. And he begins speaking of that in Jeremiah 32. He'll give them a new heart. And he'll draw them far away from far away and bring them in and give them a new heart and make them his people. Alright, so here's the deal. These promises that God makes in the Old Testament, see, here's what we do. We oftentimes think that salvation through Jesus just begins in the Gospels and in the New Testament, kind of goes on. That's not the case. God's promise of of a Messiah, God's promise of saving a people begins in the Old Testament. He begins talking about that. He begins foreshadowing that and, and, and prophesying that and promising that. And that's the thing that we need to think of here. These covenants of promise that he's referring to mark out the pathway of God's saving plan. The way he's going to save his people is described, is marked out by these covenants of promise. And what he's saying is that you Gentiles didn't know these. You were strangers to these. I mean, think about that. I mean, even think about sharing the gospel today. Like, how many people just have no clue God's saving purposes? 
how God saves people, how God changes their lives, how God makes them right and draws them near. They're strangers to these things. But what he's saying here is in an ultimate sense, you Gentiles were strangers to all of my promises. And so Paul says that, again, you non-Jews, non-ethnic Jews, your biggest problem when it comes to life and God is that you were without Christ. Now there are at least two big consequences in this passage to being without Christ. I want to practically think through those with you. Two practical consequences to being outside of Christ. There are great consequences for being outside of Christ. The first one is this, no hope. What's he going on to say? Right? Remember that at verse 12. Remember that, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise. And he says what? Having no hope. Having no hope. When hope goes, there's nothing left to life. I mean, just raise your hand. You like hope? Do we, we all want hope, right? Yeah. We all want hope. What he says here is that you Gentiles were without hope. And when hope goes, there's nothing left to life. How do you live without hope? How do you live life without hope? You really don't. It's more like just traversing misery than living life. And Paul is saying that we Gentiles had no access to the Scriptures that here in a physical manner because only the Jews did. And outside of God's saving plan, there is nothing but hopelessness. Now, I want to pause for just a moment. This doesn't mean that the Gentiles felt despair all the time. I mean, this is necessary for when we think about living missionally, we think about sharing the gospel with people. The people around us often do not live like they're necessarily in just great despair all the time. Because what can happen is hope can be like the hope, hope in Christ, the kind of hope that he's talking about here, hope for the future, that can kind of be filled temporarily with other things. And so we have to be careful with that. Because I think well, oftentimes we can think of those who are around us who are without hope, we know are without hope, oftentimes appear happy. And in in some ways they are. But what we know from God's scriptures is that that's a temporary happiness and that's a temporary hope. And a temporary hope is not really hope. It's false hope. It's a lie. Because hope is something that is assured. Something that must happen. Something that will happen. Something that's lasting. There's no hope in this life apart from Christ. And Paul is saying, prior to Jesus, you had no hope. Now, there's no other religion in the world that provides real lasting hope. Like the hope that comes in Jesus Christ. You read the book of Ecclesiastes. And life is vanity. It's futile. The idealism of our day is nothing but futility. Like, 
our day, we have all these ideals of what life should look like, and things should be good and happy and pleasing, all these things, and all of that is nothing but futile if it one day it will surely come to end. But that which that cannot come to end, everlasting joy, everlasting peace, and hope in Jesus Christ, that, if indeed it will never end, then it is the only thing that is not simply futile and pointless. He said no hope. So no hope in this life and no hope beyond this life. When I was reading a sermon by Dr. the doctor, Dr. Jones, and not Dr. Jones from Indiana Jones, okay? I got that reference too. Okay. I do know that one. So Dr. Jones, all right, he, he quoted this famous hymn writer saying this. It says, Men die in darkness at your side without a hope to cheer the tomb. They look forward, but what do they see? Nothing. They cannot see through death. They have not the faith that sees through death. What lies beyond? They do not know. They either say there is nothing or else there is torment or else a series of reincarnations. They do not know. And as they arrive at the end and are leaving everything, the palaces and the towers are collapsing, and there is nothing without hope. That is life without Christ. That is the life that is being lived by millions of people in this country today who think that we are fools because we sit in chapels listening to this old gospel, this old good news of Jesus. They think that they have life and freedom, but that is their position, having no hope. And Paul goes on to say, but not only is there no hope outside of Christ, he says that they're without God. He says, you Gentiles who, who are now following Jesus, who are now saying that you are without hope and without God. Now that's a big deal. Now here's the deal. The Gentiles in that day would have very quickly claimed devotion to their deity, to their gods. And they were very pious about such things. And if you look in those today who are outside of Christ, there are many gods of our day, and peoples have great devotion to those things. Think in terms of science, and liberalism, and religiosity, and legalism, and sexuality. I mean, these are all great gods of our day. But without the God, without God Himself, it means living as those in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, dead in their trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of the world. What He means, without God, is without all the help, peace, joy that comes through the knowledge of God. And faith in Him. But then he says this. It's interesting. He says, no hope. Without hope. Without God. In the world. And that, again, that kind of takes us back to chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. So you were dead in your trespasses and sins, following, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following Satan, if you will, the spirit that is now at work, it talks about pa- carrying out the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. 
And what he means by in the world is that you belong to, he's saying you Gentiles, you who are now followers of Jesus, that you were once a part of, you belonged to the passing world that is now under the wrath of God, under condemnation, and is set to be destroyed. You were a part of that. You were a part of that. You were following the course of the world. That you were headed for utter destruction. I mean, think what Paul is saying to you, follower of Jesus. That you were headed for this. I want to, again, go back to kind of our thinking here. If you're not sure if you're a follower of Christ, I, I just, I, I say this really humbly and I hope with great compassion that you see that this is you without hope, without God. And as the doctor would say, the only thing that makes sense is for you to run to Jesus Christ. To do it. To run. Don't walk. Run. What are you waiting for? Don't be without Christ. You say, well, how do I, how do I be right with God? How do, I, how do I have Christ? I encourage you. To repent of your sins, place your faith that Jesus died on the cross for those sins. Ask God to give you faith to believe that. And Christian, this was you. This was you. Without hope, without God in the world. You're not any better than the rest of the world in the sense of where you came from. Even if you were born going to church. You were still born without hope, without God, in the world. And no promises other than the silent promise of destruction. And Paul is saying today, remember who you were and never forget it. Remember where you came from. Don't forget it. But Paul, this is what's awesome. If Paul is also saying, don't just remember that. I want you to remember something else, too. I want you to remember something else. To which I would say, how precious are these next words. If you understand where we were, then these next words should blow your mind. Paul says, verse 13, But now, but now, Kind of like an echo of the but God of verse 4. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now, but now, for those in Christ Jesus, for those who believe in Him as their Savior, this hopelessness, this headed for destruction, this without God is a thing of the past. You once were far off. You once were far from God. And those who were far off have now been, he says, brought near. What? How can we, who are far from God, enemies of God, without hope, 
without God, without the promises, without knowing His saving ways and, and how. And what Paul is kind of trumpeting here, if you will, is just kind of this event that marks the transition from the time before the gospel, when the Gentiles were without hope, to now the time of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, where they are with hope. And Paul now is about to describe this dramatic change that has come to those who are outside of God's people. I'd encourage you this week, go read Isaiah 55, Isaiah 56. I think those passages begin to speak of the unification of Israel with all people in the worship of God. I think it's easy for Paul to have understood these as a prophecy where they would include the Gentiles would be a part of God's people through the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul is kind of marking this transition, this change, that you were once without hope, but now there's hope. I also want to point out that we are not Christians because of what we do. Something we learned from this passage, we are Christians based upon our relationship to God. It's not about a bunch of rules and stuff. I mean, those serve a purpose But we're not defined by what we do. We're defined by who we are in relationship to God. And I want to speak for just a moment. This is something that's been close to my heart. And there's many in this room who, uh, and I was really served by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this particular point. But, you know, many of us in this room, maybe not many, but there's at least a, a selection of us who kind of appear to have this clean life before redemption. This clean life, like we didn't do anything terribly wrong. Maybe we got saved at a young age. Kind of grew up going to church. And I think, I, I know myself, I kind of fit in this category. We often get discouraged because we don't see some sort of dramatic distinction. Like, oh, that's who I was. I was a rebel, a just terrible sinner. And then on this side, now, praise God, I don't do those things. I've been set free from these great sins. And I want to encourage you, I think you're looking at the matter entirely, if that's you, you're looking at it entirely in the terms of conduct and behavior. And you're doing so in a negative fashion. I think it's, those are good, we can look at that, but I think you're looking at it entirely that way. But if you look at it in terms of knowing God and rejoicing in Him, and the fact that you were not doing that, then you should see that there is no difference between you and the worst of sinners. That you did not know God, and you did not rejoice in God. You say, well, how does that make me just as bad as the worst of sinners? It's because you were robbing God of His glory due from you. And that you are saying something else is more worthy of rejoicing in than the creator of the world. That's blasphemous. So, just in case you felt good about your past, there you go. 
But now, but now, look at what Paul says about us who are followers of Jesus. Look at this. Like Paul was thinking, you know, you know, think in terms of, of the temple in Jerusalem. Divided into different courts, okay? The, you had the temple, this is where sacrifices were made so that the people of Israel could be right with God. And the, the sacrifices, of course, just foreshadowing the, uh, the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ to come. But it was divided into different courts. I don't want to go through all the details, not that I could even if off the top of my head. But divided into different courts. I know in the center you have what, what I've always heard called the, the Holy of Holies. That was the place where the presence of God was revealed in His glory over what was called the mercy seat. That's the, the place where, sacrifice, where the blood was laid over top of the Ark of the Covenant where man's sin was atoned for. And only one man could enter into that place. Well then outside of that place there were other courts with the furthest court from the Holy of Holies being what was called the court of the Gentiles. But Paul says these words. You follower of Jesus, you're no longer in that court. Matter of fact, you're no longer in the, the next court. But God has brought those who were furthest away. He has brought them in. That the fall, right? When man sinned in Genesis, man is shut out from the presence of God. That's what happens with the garden. That's why the angels were put to guard the entrance into the garden and man was forced to leave the garden. What does that symbolize? That man is now far from God. Then we have this great covenant of grace where God says, I'm going to save and make a people for myself. He says, we have been brought into this covenant and are now beginning to enjoy the full blessings of God's new covenant with man. I want to read to you Hebrews 8, verse 10 through 12. It says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sin, their sins no more. And Paul says, You were separated from Christ, and now you're united with Christ. That we are made one with Him in His death and resurrection. And that our debt owed to God, like the payment, the punishment for our sins, is paid for by Jesus. He says we have been drawn near to the Father in His saving work, like what He did to save us. You know, when we get into danger, the danger is thinking that our own efforts draw us nearer to God. I'm sure I encourage you to go read John, uh, James 4, 7 through 8. It says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Great passage. 
I think Paul is talking about initial saving work of God in a person's life. Like the great Gentile inclusion where he's going to bring them into salvation. He brings you into salvation. I think James rather is talking about the ongoing saving work of God in a person's life. Sanctification, if you will. Walking with God. So, But we are united with Christ and that cannot be changed. But as we walk with the Lord, we must draw near to Him. But here's where we get into danger. We get into danger because we, th- we begin to think the more we distance ourselves from how God drew us near through the blood of Jesus, we begin to be distant from that and forget that. And so then as we try to follow God, we begin to just base all of that and work through all of that on this idea that Well, God's far from me, and so I need to do these things to get close to Him, forgetting that you were brought near to Him by the blood of Jesus Christ. We cannot forget that. So we're united with Christ, no longer separated from Christ, and we also know God. Now, I want to be careful here. You can be religious and know things about God and yet not be a Christian. There are lots of those such people, particularly lots of politicians, who claim to know things about God and yet are not Christians. But those who know God, those who know God, can can go to God with boldness. Not with pride, but with boldness. Why? Because there's an assurance of salvation that comes from Jesus. So this drawing near to God thing, that, that for you Christians that struggle with that, look, you don't, you don't get to go near to God because you've, you've had enough quiet times for this week or because you've said enough prayers this week. Certainly those, those impact the relational aspect of God. But you've been, brought, you've been drawn near to God, not because of your religious accomplishments, but because of Jesus' accomplishment on the cross for your sins. Now hope is the next thing. We have hope. We don't look into the face of death as if this is all there is. Do you know how oftentimes I could tell that we are living as if we have no hope? Like no hope in Jesus that, that heaven is to come and, and we have eternity with Him? It's because we oftentimes make decisions today as if this is all there is. That if I don't get it now, I'm never going to get it. But instead, Christian, we have a hope. We live a life full of hope. That would be my question to you. Does your coworkers see you as someone full of hope or someone who's empty or someone whose hope wavers? Hope, ultimately, that our Savior Jesus is coming for us and will make us new and sinless and fill us with His glory. And next week, I'm going to spend more time expounding on this particular point. But Paul says that all of this has happened by the blood. I'm actually going to teach next week on just that phrase, by the blood. If you 
like going, all right, what's this blood thing, right? What's this blood? We're going to talk about that next week. God has placed us in Christ, and He has done so by the blood. Think of it this way. Our sinfulness, for those who repented and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, our sinfulness is covered by His blood. Like our debt has been paid. It's done. Why? Because justice has been served. And grace and mercy has been shown to us. So let me just kind of circle this back around to where we start. You're thinking through this following Jesus Christ. Do you feel far from God? That's kind of where we began today. Do you feel far from God? The reason you do, I, I can tell you, it's very simple. It's because you think you have your own way of getting near to God. And what happens is it keeps failing you and failing you and failing. But this text has just told us that the only way for us to come near to God is for God to bring God Himself to bring us near to Him, particularly by the blood of Jesus Christ. God has to bring you by the blood. And what do you do? Then you respond to God with faith that Jesus died to pay your debt. And if you don't have that kind of faith to do that, I would encourage you to ask God to give you that kind of faith. Beg God to give you that kind of faith to believe this about Jesus. And then for you faithful saints following Jesus Christ, how much of your life do you wander around living functionally as if you're far from God? Kind of, one day I kind of feel near God, and the next day I kind of feel far from God. One moment I kind of feel near God, and I fall far from God. Like what Lloyd-Jones says, he says, And let us be clear about this, if I am not in Christ, I have never been near God. God. Does that mean for us that if you're in Christ, then child of God, if you are in Christ, child of God, you have been brought near to God. It's a past thing. It's a already happened thing. And my encouragement to you would be this. Now live like it. Live like it. Know it. Love it. Be thankful for it. Enjoy the freedom of drawing near to God as James 4 tells us to do. Enjoy the peace that comes from God's saving work in your life. I mean, there's so many things to think about when you think about that God has drawn you near, that you were once far away and hopeless and without God, following the course of this world and, and slaves to your passions. And God has set you free from that and not just set you free to then go live the happy life. He set you free and drawn you near to Him. And the last thing I would say is this. You will never be the Christian God has called you to be if you do not remember that you were once far off and that God brought you near. And He did so through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.
Father. Father, thank you that those in this world that were without hope, that you have given us hope, given us hope by the blood of your Son, Jesus. That the world around us is so searching for hope. And many times we live as if we're searching for it too. But we have hope. We have been, we've been drawn near to you, Father. You've done this. And Father, I pray that we would live like people who have hope. We would live like people who have been drawn near to you, Father. Not people that are kept at an arm's distance or people that question whether or not they are your child. But Father, people that know that they are your children. Father, I just I pray that if there's anyone who's maybe without hope this morning, Father, that you would draw their hearts, even this moment, that you would give them the faith. Faith to believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for their sins. That you have given them grace and mercy. Father, we give you praise for these things this morning. In Jesus' name.